This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of She Speaks Fire, Battling Shame, Reigniting Your Faith, and Claiming Your Purpose by spoken word poet Mariella Rosario and available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Part of my view is we've not returned to a new normal. We've just returned to normal. It's not abnormal. We were in the abnormal before. We're seeing people walk away. That happened before. Um, we're seeing people go weird theologically. That happened before. The, the 17th and 18th century was riven with polarization that was beyond, I think, anything that's been seen in the U. I mean, the, the, the 1600s in Britain had a full-blown civil war um, involving Puritans, you know, and, and versus the crown. You know, these things have all had, it had pandemic, smallpox, all happened before. And somehow in the midst of this, the Holy Spirit is seeding new things. It can feel like our moment in time with a pandemic and social unrest and polarization is just too much, that we live in a particularly unique and fraught time. What is the way through? Well, in this conversation, I chat with Mark Sayers about his most recent book, A Non-Anxious Presence. And it isn't so much that our time is unique, but also there is a way through. We talk through particular frameworks to help us calmly operate in this changing world. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. During the next three months, during June, July, and August, you can expect episodes to release every other Tuesday. As the seasons change and our schedule changes, I hope it allows you to not miss an episode. So I'll see you back in two weeks. Friends, I am excited to welcome Mark Sayers to the podcast. We are talking about his most recently released book, all about a non-anxious presence, and we'll find the conversation really helpful, I think, particularly in this pandemic moment. So thanks for being with us today, Mark. Yeah, absolute pleasure. It's so fun to have you. I've enjoyed your books and listened to your own podcasts. I think the way in which you are able to kind of clearly trace cultural trends is very helpful, particularly for leaders in the church. So, um, you know, as you were working on this book and you're kind of talking about this idea of a non-anxious presence and the, the phrase comes from Friedman, you know, what, what particularly led you to this idea of gray zones and this kind of cultural shift that we see happening in this kind of pandemic world? What was it that was like, these are the metaphors that clinched some of your analysis? So in, in 2019, I guess I got a real sense that something was coming to an end, which I sort of felt weird about because um, I think I probably felt like, you know, God had had me at this place where I was speaking about this new phase that emerged in the world. And, you know, I'd written books like Disappearing Church, um, which was really describing this post-Christian moment and almost the sort of mm-hmm. story which really was being told and I think at the time looked sort of accurate. 
was that the world was just going to keep progressing and societies would become more secular and uh, the sort of material conditions weren't going to change much, but there was going to be this change in how people thought about God and faith. And, you know, I think Australia is quite a post-Christian society and has been for some time, but you saw in mm-hmm. places like the US where people were grappling with what that meant. So I sort of thought that that's what it's going to be for the next 20 years or so. And, you know, I, I felt that that was, you know, God had me positioned there. But then I just had this sense things were going to change. And, uh, hmm. you know, a lot of the trends that were that was happening in the world, I felt that post, I think I said to someone, I think post-Christianity is going to get disrupted and uh, it may not play mm-hmm. it as we think. And then when the pandemic mm-hmm. kicked off, I think a lot of people's thought was, hey, this is going to be an interruption for six weeks. And here we are, you know, two and a half years later or something. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't that the pandemic changed the world. The pandemic did change the world, but it also revealed many things. It accelerated many things, perhaps moved us forward a few years. Um, but my sense, too, was that I had to write a book to prepare people because it was not all going to go back to normal. So I had to prepare people for what the next phase was. But the term gray, gray zone I came up with because I noticed no, we don't know what the next phase is. I think it's a transitional moment. And there's all these things mm-hmm. changing. So to say to people, oh, we're now in this phase, it's not accurate. There will be a phase that comes at some stage, but we're actually in between mm-hmm. phases. And that's particularly confusing because you see the old phases still here and then you see the new phases. I just traveled for the first time overseas uh, in the last sort of month and a half, went to the UK and New Zealand, two countries I've been to many times. And it was weird. It was like, oh, this is familiar, but things have changed. And you'd be walking around cities, you couldn't put your finger on it. So that's sort of the sense of the moment, I think. You know, and I think, you know, you talk about it too as it's not just like some new data or something or or even new software has been downloaded, but, you know, that the whole hardware really of how life works and operates has, has shifted. So when you're thinking about these sorts of structural changes and then it shifts the task of leadership particularly, what do you suggest, you know, particularly to Christian leaders to begin either personal or corporate kind of rhythms to be able to be that non-anxious presence in this kind of in-between time? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, I find it a really interesting moment because um, in the last phase, I think the way we spoke about it was that here is this secular world, this post-Christian world, which is slowly forming us. You know, our phones are slowly mm-hmm. forming us. And um, mm-hmm. you walk into the mall and it's slowly forming you. So how do we sort of have these counter formation? And, and, you know, I was very much, you know, a big advocate of that. But I realized something began to change um, when the pandemic kicked off. And I had this conversation with many people who were like pushing into that in my church, you know, pastorally. And were just like, I, I, everything's up in the air. I can't do it. You know, all of a sudden I'd take a Sabbath, but now I'm homeschooling and I would be lucky to get half an hour and had all these great things going like simplicity, but my house looks like a bomb's gone off inside of it now. Or, or, you know, I remember talking to a, just bumping into a guy on, on sort of when you, you know, all you could do is pretty much walk in the lockdown from our church. And mm-hmm. he's, mm-hmm. he was having to work seven days a week to keep his business afloat, to keep, you know, keep people employed and stuff like that. And just like, how do I do these practices? And I realized that we sort of switched from counter formation to how do you live with disruption? So I still believe in the practices, um, but I think you have to do them differently. I think a temptation comes in this moment where because the world is out of kilter and very out of control, it feels like there is a slight danger that practices can become something which almost becomes a way that we can control our inner world. 
and I've had this conversation right. with lots of people. Um, and yeah, so I, I think in this moment, we need to, again, discover, I think even sort of some of our corporate practices. Um, I didn't put this in the book. So this is, this is new thinking. Great. This is all new information. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> new information. So what, one thing I noticed is, and I'm seeing this here in Australia, I have spoken to people around in the UK and in New Zealand just recently about this. It'd be interesting. I'm not sure if this happened in the US, but um, I suspect it may be. When I started our church, or in its, you know, I sort of took over and we, we sort of replanted really. I could get people to any social community thing. We'd have a dinner on or something when we were sort of planting, kicking off, and 50 people would turn up and, and some we didn't even know. Like, how did you, at this dinner, this is great. If I talked about practices, no one wanted to hear it. <laughs> it wasn't cool. Right. Uh, if I mentioned something like Sabbath, people <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you know, they're running out the door. Um, so the, the thing was, people wanted community, 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 relationship, relationship, relationship. I just realized in the last month, we're almost in this opposite place. Hmm. where everyone's like wanting to push into different different disciplines and, and practices for their own personal life. They're listening to lots of Christian podcasts and sermons from other churches. They're doing a lot of stuff. But now to get people to a sort of social regular rhythm, it might turn off to a one-off thing, but sort of that congregational mm-hmm. capacity where people turn up and be formed by iron sharpens iron mm-hmm. in a social sort of context following Jesus together, that's harder. Um so I feel like we're at this really interesting moment where I'm I'm still passionate about practices, but feel we have to work out what they look like in a gray zone moment. And there's probably the sense in which too, those practices, like you said, can be ways to con- kind of to control the anxiety um, in yes. some way. And they can also, you know, just really iterate your point about the internet, particularly right being you know the the place in which control is performed, you know, and the sense in which yes. that's really kind of our, our primary network. And so if we can get all of those individualized practices on the internet, then we are losing out um, on the corporate identity formative things. And even even a helpful way to think about it might be, we've often spoken about the universal church and the local church. And, you know, mm-hmm. for a lot of history, it's really hard to connect in with the universal church if you, for travel and the internet and all these things, you know, your primary community was your local church. Um, and, you know, then you might go to a conference or something, you know. Um, but now I realize we're in this weird place where there's lots of people who are part of the universal church and you can connect with the universal church and pick and choose, um, but you're not part of a local community. But the local community is where the universal church is lived out. Um, so I feel like people haven't thought through that. And I'm starting to think about what, what does that mean? Um, how do we do both? Like, it's great. You know, I just, again, I just was in New Zealand, caught up with people I've known for years, brilliant, universal church, bunch of different denominations together. Awesome. But it's almost like the hard thing now is getting a bunch of people to travel together in a particular geographic location over generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, across, at least in America, political di- divides for sure. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You know, as, so as you're thinking about, you know, the church as an institution, you write in, in your book in a few places about the importance of institutions and that they that they really can be less reactive spaces, you know, that they can be, um, that they have lost a lot of power, as we know, in the last probably 50 years. Um what, what's your hope for institutions? You know, how might we build institutions? How might we think of the church as an institution? Um, what might institutions need to do differently in this gray zone and whatever the next kind of coming era might be? So I have a, I have a critique of institutions and I have hope in institutions. Um, my car, 
uh, currently is being fixed at the mechanic. And it's just given me so many problems lately. And <laughs> we, we went as a family bowling on Saturday night and the car broke down mm-hmm. and we were, it's, it's winter here, it's freezing, you know, and we're all shivering, right. waiting for the roadside assistance guy. It was stuck on top of a mall car park. So it took two days to get this special truck to get it down. Just like absolute nightmare. Oh, man. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not odd. a fan of my car at this point in time. I have ordered a new car, which is coming, um, but because of supply chain issues, it's getting made who knows where and when it's going to even turn up. So yeah, that's like institutions. I have a bad yeah. version of a car that's <laughs> driving me insane, but there is actually a new car coming at some point, which I'm sure will be much better. Um, and it's a hybrid, you know, symbolic of the new era we're heading into of energy yeah. and, and the environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's a good example. Like, I think one thing I'm passionate about is renewal, but I'm also passionate about rebuilding. You see these renewals where God moves and, it's like an awakening in history and it can last 10 years. Sometimes they're followed by quite significant drop-offs and, and backsliding and, and people going to weird spaces. And um, institutions take something of value, a renewal, and then make it go beyond just individuals and allow it to go across time and space multi-generationally. That's really what institutions do. Uh, in the 18th century, you know, the renewals that happened uh, you know, in, in Europe and in America and around the world, um, actually their effect was extended because a whole bunch of institutions were created. Um, and some of those institutions, like in Australia, we have the RSPCA, the Royal Society for Protection of, of Animals, which is all across the Commonwealth. That actually came out of the vision of the Clapham sect, who the renewal hmm. was this movement, but also it went deep into every sphere of society. And one of them was how do we uh, treat animals well? Uh, with a kingdom perspective. Not many people know that. Mm-hmm. And and so for me, institutions are containers and extenders of something really good. What we're seeing is I would call zombie institutions at the moment. Zombie institutions are institutions which have lost their mission, lost their norms, um, and uh, and are struggling to, you know, they, they, they're continuing on, uh, but they're in a sort of zombie, weird, mutant form. And it's easy to get discouraged about them and um, some need to die some need to be reformed and new ones need to be birthed but I think this sort of we must have this sort of one thing I push back a little bit is almost this sort of false duality I think we have of oh let's just create a sort of organic hippie rave versus institutions with boring people in suits Um, um, yeah Yeah, I think that's really important because I we tend you know, to think too, particularly in Western society, we are living off of the fruitfulness of past generations and, you know, but just kind of wanting the fruit without like the root in some ways, right? You know, so that institutions too, you can think about the ways in which we we want, you know, what they might provide for us um, without either the work or the rebuilding or the restructuring, you know, in a new in a new era. Yes. And, and we're living on the shoulders of yeah. giants, you know, I, I think, you know, like, and this is part of the transition moment that in so many things we enjoy, um, other people put the work in, but then you're sort of like tearing down, you know, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a house here, which is the oldest house in this area. This is my office. It's, we have a, this property where we just have our offices. We worship somewhere else. But this was the one of the first farms in this area, this house. The house actually was moved about, 100 yards then it was a presbyterian church and then now we have it and um 
yeah, there's a story. There's actually a beautiful story that, you know, where I'm having here, someone raised their children in this office, but now it's continuing on, you know. So I think we we don't think longitudinally as Christians because we're so in the moment like our society. You know, and if you think about, you know, that the idea of, of being in the moment um, and, you, you know, you're talking about anxiety and reactivity and reactivity is kind of replaced reflection what might it look like for then for us as leaders whether it's in a church or in our families and our neighborhoods to begin to practice some of that reflection on a corporate level you know to begin to tell those stories like whether it's your the story of the house turned into the church office um yeah, how might we do that? Because there is this tension, right, as you're talking about being in this kind of middle in-between moment where we are, you know, trying to find some sort of homeostasis. And so you talk about this sort of strongholds to kind of push away the anxiety. But how might we, you know, hold some of these sorts of things in tension, um, both in the fact that we don't know what maybe the next kind of era will look like for the church, especially in the West. Um, and, you know, how might we begin some of those practices that will sustain attention in our local congregations? So I think what, what I realized the pandemic revealed was assumptions on our behalf. And you don't really know mm-hmm. assumptions are there until they're, they're questioned. You know? <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the weird things is like, in, uh, I've learned this traveling that, um, you know, when I go into a coffee shop in Australia and I have a coffee, when I walk out, I say thanks to the barista. It's just this thing. Everyone does. Mm-hmm. Been to very similar, you know, coffee shops in, in, in America or the UK and you go like, thanks. And they're like, what? Um, <laughs> there's this weird thing. Um, but you do it in Australia. Again, I mentioned I was in New Zealand last week. And I noticed, oh, they do it. So there's this weird thing of Australian New Zealand culture. There's this thing. I, no mm-hmm. one ever taught me that. Ha, ha, like, how did I get, I get taught that? Because it's an assumed part of our culture. And I think one of the assumed part of our cultures in church leadership setting, and, and I think also then in Christian setting as well, is that the, the environment's going to essentially stay the same. And, you know, like we might improve things by changing our programs. You can run programs when the environment's the same, but it's also your life. You know, if you think the conditions environment are pretty much the same, it's much more about how I'm doing. I have a sense of control. And the sort of self-help message then is the environment's going to essentially be the same. The one thing that can change is you. The environment's going to get more and more, you know, progress to more productivity. So you've got to find more productivity and have little more life hacks and become more successful and fitter or wealthier or whatever. Um, But the environment is now changing and that's hugely challenging for pastors to not be able to do a Sunday service. I I just knew people who melt down because they could not have that concept of that. That would ever be a reality. How how do you lead if I can't do programs? And that's true for, for pastors, but individuals. So what I realize is it, it throws you into a kind of crisis um, because you, you realize I don't, I'm not in control. And I think when we're not in control, we can get very reactive because we panic and we get fearful and we get anxious. But what I, what I realized is that crises are, are always things which precede renewal. That doesn't guarantee, they're not guaranteed to precede renewal. They precede renewal when you have a framework, a biblical framework that when challenges come, they, you know, if you look at the whole, look at the whole narrative of scripture here, so often people who have a challenge, they often mess it up, but then they turn to God, God's grace embraces us and then new life and new creation is born. So I think instead of like um, slow 2% hacks where we get better, 
We need to embrace a renewal moment. You know, we all have dreams for, you know, if you've got kids, you may have dreams for what your kids will be and how a fantastic parent you're going to be. Um, and then you have kids, you know, there's, there's two. That, and you have the reality. <laughs> yeah, what's that saying? There's two types of people, people who have opinions about parenting and, and parents. Um, and, and, you know, there's this sense where, but when you hit those problems, there is a sense to push into God. So part of, I think, what's happening is we could go on cruise control because the environment was fairly stable. We lived in this bizarre period in history, which was like where all these pieces aligned and we could have this incredible life. Um, but now um, it's not happening. So I think churches in that space can try and take back control by commenting, you know, like, like not commenting, but reacting. Do you know what I mean? And, and you get these horrible feedback loops in churches where the pastor's trying to react, the congregation's reacting, often in the United States politically, and it just becomes a giant sort of anxious mess. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah, and, you know, so what, for, for those of us who, for whatever reason, God has helped us to actually be much more non-anxious, I wonder how do we help pass that on? So I'm, I'm thinking particularly just in my own life, you know, over, we've had just so many challenges in ministry and people leaving and we wanted to leave, but couldn't, you know, and tightly tethered to the local church. Um, and just having to press into God, I wrote a book all about limits and how our limits are actually good. And you talk about limits as the thing that actually will help us grow and adapt well, but, you know, noticing our own limits, myself and my husband in our ministry lives has helped us because we had nowhere else to turn, <laughs> you know, press into God, press into the fact that he's in control, press into the fact that life is not looking like we wanted it to look and that's okay. Um, and we have seen, I think years later, the fruit of some of that in our, in different ministry contexts, you know, that we're able to be non-anxious presences and to listen well. And, you know, of course we mess up all the time, but you know, there's a sense in which that took lots of years to form us into much more or less reactionary than we were 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, and looking back, I don't know if I can say anything other than, you know, that we were tightly tethered to the local church. We had nowhere to turn, but God suffering is going to help shape you. Um, what other things might you name, even as we're thinking about as leaders, potentially? Sorry, this is a very long question, but, you know, as we are leaders, 
how do we help inculcate some of that non-anxious presence and not just be that presence, but help kind of create another generation of non-anxious presence people? <laughs> yeah, a great question. I think uh, there's a couple of elements. I think, first of all, when, when you step into a place of pursuing being a non-anxious presence, uh, the foundation thing for my for I say is you've got to do that with God's presence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. The thing I, I realized reading reading Friedman was I love the theory. There's no way I can pull this off in my own strength. I'm not that good. <laughs> Maybe he was, you know, right. like, yeah. like I, I, I get I, I get frustrated. I mean you think of you mentioned people leaving, um, talking to pastors all across the world. I think that's one of the real pain um, things, you know. And and you know, there's there's always gonna be someone at the back pew who leaves and that's just part of church but you know talking to people who's really good friends you know they travel with for years people who've planted with them all this stuff like that that pain's real so that that's tough how do you not react in that and and it might be the angry reacting it could just be the internal pain reacting you know and um so i realized that you know my message is yes friedman's theory is really good but it has limits because i think um it, it's missing a biblical you know, understanding that actually it's God's presence and God with us and his grace that enables us to be, to be non-anxious presence. The second thing I would say is um, when you step in, you know, begin to step into that, because I don't think you have arrived, like it's on this, you know, <laughs> no. it's, it's, a, it's <laughs> becoming Christ-like. So yeah, it, it's a process of becoming Christ-like. And two things happen. One is this magnetic. Um, so there are people who are drawn to it and like, there's something different, you know, and I think it's 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 sort of caught and not taught in that way. So then there's people who are naturally going to like, oh, okay, learn from it. You know, there, there's, you know, Friedman sort of talks about like a healthy white blood cell in, in the system. You become that white blood cell in the social relational system. So it's magnetic, but then also it's repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's repulsive to people who want to stay in anxiety. There are people who, who, um, have learned to live with a toxic reactivity. The whole culture is like this now. Um, you know, like there's actually, there's content. So there's content just means the communication of information. But I realized the other day, like we're moving away from here's a book about this theory or this concept. It's now I'm reacting to these other concepts or YouTube reaction videos are becoming like the dominant thing where it's I'm reacting to someone else. Um, so there's a sense that if you pursue that, there's going to be people who get really annoyed that you're not worrying about the things that they're worrying or you're not reactive yep. about yep. the things you're, right. you know, and you may even be concerned. So there can be something where I'm concerned about something. I want to do something about it. But even that's not enough. They want some sort of emotional, almost performative thing is I think where, where we're sort of at as a culture. So I think I think there's those two things. But then I think the third thing, if you want to enculturate that into a community, into, into a social system, it's giving people frameworks. Um, I think what we do, what we're good at is giving people information. We're good at giving people, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, programs, but we're not good in giving people frameworks because when the conditions are continually changing and, um, you know, we, 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 um, we have podcast rebuilders, which we, sometimes talk about what's happening in the news. Like last week, we're like, we're going to talk about Boris, you know, what, Boris Johnson's, you know, uh, end of his uh, prime ministership, you know, and then it's like, hang on, that was like five days ago. That was our idea. And I'm sort of here, we're recording today. I'm like, is it even relevant still? You know, like, like news <laughs> right, stories right, yeah. in 48 hours go from the biggest thing to nothing. So there's this sense of it's continually changing. But if I have a framework to understand that, I can take that framework to different situations. So I think giving people the framework of an unanxious presence, where some of those concepts 
that's that's transportable. So I think less like here's how I've got to think about this particular issue, people, versus a framework which you can have used in so many different situations. And there's a sense too then you're helping people be more adaptive leaders instead of technical managers. Yes, yes. Which which I think is something, you know, that we've trained a whole generation of pastors to technically lead. Um, and, you know, business books are helpful, um, but, you know, that, that works when the environment's the same. You can replicate something in multiple, you know, you can sort of do a Walmart or McDonald's franchise thing where leadership's going to look the same in every context. One thing we're seeing is in the pandemic is just regionalization. It's so different in different places. It always was. But I think we're realizing that, that culture matters, um, you know, and people talk about American culture. I'm like, you know, people say, what do you think about American culture? So, they, But I'm like, I'll never forget flying from San Francisco to Dallas. And I'm like, I've just gone from, I might as well flying from Iceland to Greece. Like, like this is, this is more like Europe, completely different. And then there's different, you know, Dallas to Austin in one state is completely different. Um, and then if you took Austin, there would be entire segments of that city, which would be very different. Um, so I think transportable frameworks in a complex world are, are really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's really, it's a helpful way of thinking about things too. And it gives you at least, you know, something to, to hold on to in the midst of, of those different contexts. How would, how would that be different than, you know, you just think of, uh, kind of the contextualization in ministry, um, that whole, I mean, it's still, it's always important. It's always been around, but maybe it had its heyday in you know early two thousands about, um, how do we contextualize the gospel? Uh, thinking of, you know, Tim Keller and City to City and all of those wonderful networks. But, you know, how is some of what you're talking about maybe different from, I think in some ways the contextualization question might be a little bit more of when the world is stable, this is maybe a a framework that works, that makes sense. But if everything's in disarray and we have these networks that are, you know, like you talk about taking power and decentralizing it, how does maybe your your idea of framework fit in with some of those earlier contextualization uh, conversations that were going on? Ah, oh, great question. Um, I've often tried to work out what I am, and someone described me as like missiology. I, I did study missiology. I think maybe like, but I've never thought that. But then I was like, maybe this is what I'm trying to do here. And if you go back to yeah, I think 100 right. So contextualization, you have people like Donald McGavran who came back from the mission field, Peter Wagner, these people came back from the mission field and was like, how do we then contextualize the gospel like we did in the mission fields in Western contexts? A lot of this led to the church growth movement. Um, but it's interesting if you look at I think the fullness of what missiology, which for those who have not heard that term, it's the study or science of missions. Um, if you look at it and you look at someone like Leslie Newbigin, he was doing other things as well. He, what he was doing was often the, the, person, the missionary was the one who was also recording and, and understanding the culture that they were a guest in, in ways that even the, the local people hadn't understood or articulated. A lot of the linguistic work of capturing languages and many languages, which would have passed into extinction, have been now captured and written down. and We have records of them. Um, and some even sort of you know, given new life through the work of, in missions. Um, that I think the, the first first point is the, the the missionary or the missiologist, whatever context they find them out in, should be an articulator of culture. One of the strangest things I found is I'm, I began by trying to help the church understand Western culture, 
But then I began to discover all these people who were not believers and they didn't always necessarily agree with where I got to, but were absolutely fascinated when you spoke about culture. I mean, I was interviewed at one point I was interviewed for an article by for Cosmopolitan. Like, <laughs> like, like people, people are absolutely fascinated to understand culture. And because culture is always in flux, I think one of the mistakes, the contextual thing is here is Cambodian culture. Now, there's historical Cambodian culture, but this Cambodian culture in 1990 is different to 2022. Um, so culture is changing. So I think we have a role to be articulators of what we're seeing because we're not exactly part of the culture. Like, um, you know, you can, you can, um, you know, I was talking to a guy in New Zealand who had migrated to New Zealand from Kenya and he was talking to me at this event saying, oh, it's been really helpful reading stuff to help me understand the West. Now I've moved to the West. And I was like, oh, that's bizarre. I never thought I'd be helping Kenyan migrants understand the West. I'm just trying to help us understand ourselves. Um, so I think articulation, but then I think the other thing that Newbegin and some others got was. It's also how have we compromised with the culture. So contextualization can sometimes miss out. It's like, how do we understand the culture so we can do mission then to the culture or in the culture? But there's also a two-way street. I think the best missiology is like, oh, hang on. Wow. Western culture is, is radically individual. We've also taken a lot of that on. Um, so I think, I think missiology is still an incredibly helpful framework, but maybe just when we're just doing the contextualization thing, we're only doing part of it and we need the, the full suite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Thanks. Thank you for that. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, and I'm thinking too, a little bit, you know, as we're thinking about articulating our culture and um, both that we're a part of and that we have imbibed ourselves, um, you know, and as we are meant to, you know, be basking in God's presence and therefore look different and non-anxious. You know, as we think about that, what do you, what do you, what does it feel like your hope is for both kind of an individual in a very localized context, whether that's your local church, your neighborhood, your family, what does that look like? What, you know, what, how does that kind of trickle out, um, reverberate? And how might we be that, that sort of non-anxious presence in this hyper-connected world that we actually live in, you know, quote unquote, live in um, the, the digital age. Because, you know, I think there's a tendency, I've noticed it myself, is to run away from social media and just stay local. Um, but as an author, as a podcaster, there are requirements for one's job to be in those spaces. So how, do, how does one engage even in that environment as well? I keep mentioning the New Zealand trip because I was just on it, but I spoke um, and did some stuff on my book and then responding to me was actually my friend Roshan Allpress who is yep. um, is the um, principal of Laidlaw College um, Seminary in New Zealand and but he's also an Oxford historian on the 18th century evangelical movement um, but really how it was a globalised movement. And in response to me, he said something which has just really fascinated me. He said basically... The plausibility structures for society and the church were falling apart in the 17th century, in the 18th century. At the beginning of the 1700s, you know, you could argue that places like Britain and America were, were almost as post-Christian as they appear now. Yet then you have this incredible turnaround, renewals, but also this incredible turnaround, which almost goes for two centuries. Um, and basically he argued, sort of in, not argue in response to me, he wasn't arguing against me, but just adding to it, that we're at a similar point. 
And where we are is the there's this global movement which created this new plausibility structure where people like could hum Amazing Grace walking down the street in India and someone who wasn't of their culture could recognize that and go, we're part of this global network. And I think what happened in the pandemic is a lot of the plausibility structures that we'd set up for people that were from the last season began to fall apart. That's why some people have walked away. So I'm not advocating for, and neither was Roshan advocating for a change of theology or some you know, new whiz bang progressive view of the Bible or something. But rather what they did is there was this communal, global, but also very local, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I've been to John Wesley's house in, in London and there's the room where his societies met, which is like 50 people really grinding out discipleship at a local level, serving the poor, preaching the gospel. And, and Roshan said, we need to, we're at the point where that has to happen again. And something just sung inside my sort of heart and soul at that point, that that's the project they were part of. Um, and what he said was brilliant too. He said, it's not going to be one person does this. It's going to be a whole bunch of people. And someone put up their hand and said, how long is this going to take? And I'm thinking it's going to say 10 years. He goes, oh, probably 150 years. Oh, geez. <laughs> and, um, and, and, but he said, this is, this, that's because that's what's happened throughout history. It wasn't like someone wrote the book. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I don't know, Jonathan Edwards comes out with the manual of how to turn the church around and then it happens. You know, it was all these people all across the world, in the, you know, from the Caribbean to East Africa to, to Denmark to New Zealand, across the world. I think we're at that moment. So there's this weird thing that us having conversations like this through the internet sparks and seeds imagination from people. We both then go to our local context, very different, and try and do that locally. And somehow in the misses, the Holy Spirit is seeding new things. And we're seeing people walk away. That happened before. <laughs> um, we're seeing people go weird theologically. That happened before. The the 17th and 18th century was riven with polarization that was beyond, I think, anything that's being seen in the U. I mean, the 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 1600s in Britain had a full blown civil war um, involving Puritans, you know, and, and versus the Crown. Um, and you know, these things have all had it had pandemics, smallpox, all happened before. Part of my view is we've not returned to a new normal. We've just returned to normal. This is normal. It's not abnormal. We were in the abnormal before, and um, but in these moments, God, God does something. And I think I feel like when, when Roshan also said that, I felt a bit of a weight off my shoulders. I don't have to come up with all the answers. But I know that the Holy Spirit is using Mark Sayer's life in some weird way. And I've got to be steward that just as he's using your life and people listening all in different ways. Um, but I think the question is, so I think that I think the answer is that something's going to come out of this. We just have to keep moving forward with faith, with with zeal, with resilience, with hope in what Jesus is doing, because he's knitting something beautiful in the world. We may not see it, but you know, our kids' generation may see it, um, and, and I get excited about that. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for leaving us with, yeah, that hope. You know, and just even to remember, right? Like we are not. This is not the most unique moment in history, right? It, you know, it's its own challenges, but yes, we've seen pandemics. We've seen defection. We've seen people walk away. We've, yeah, none of this is new and none of it is, is scary to God. So instead of be, instead of being fearful, we can actually press in deeper. So I do love to end all of my interviews with a very, it's, it's a bit of an odd question, but I love to hear everybody's laundry routines. And the reason why I asked that question, one is because 
you probably haven't been asked on an interview what your laundry routine is. But I've never two, been asked on <laughs> It comes from Kathleen Norris, um, her book, The Quotidian Mysteries, where she comes back to faith. She sees the Catholic priest doing, you know, cleaning up after the Eucharist and doing the dishes. And so I think that it's just, it's important for us to, to be able to draw those connections between the life of faith and our mundane habits. So what is Mark Sayers' laundry routine? Um, so I'm just going to check too, because sometimes translational. So you're talking like, how do you wash clothes? Because I sometimes yes. you know, we use yes. similar words differently. I just want to get that right. Yep. Just, just in case. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> Before you launch into your yeah. routine. I love it. Well, I'll give you my lifelong, my, 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 um, my father was retrenched when I was 16 from his job and my parents had to start their own business and I was mm -hmm. 16 and that was the point where I just learned to become domesticated because I had to do stuff because my parents were working so hard and uh, my mum was a stay-at-home mum before that but and then she started I started working so um you know I started cooking and um uh, I, I never loved cleaning like I'm not I, I don't like I'm vacuuming's all right but um like wiping things down, didn't like that. But I actually liked cooking and I liked sort of weirdly laundry, um, cleaning clothes. Um, and then I sort of learned that I actually liked ironing. Um, so so done the washing of clothes for many, many years. My wife Trudy's sort of doing some of it more now. And we sort of got division of tasks. I do the, um, the cooking. But the hilarious thing is I actually still do ironing. So like um, one thing that I learned to do is whenever I travel, so like often I'd come to the US yeah, up for 24 hours, but the first thing I always do when I come into a, a hotel room is iron. I iron all my clothes. And my wife and I um, haven't traveled heaps overseas, um, but we just were in the UK. And, you know, we got in, we're like, it's even longer. It's like 24, 26 hour flight or something ridiculous. And you get in and like, you know, just like, we got in so we could just go to bed and try and reset. And then I'm just like, no, nah, but I've got to iron. And she's like, what are you doing? I must do the ironing. <laughs> I must iron. Because I've got to have my shirt. My theory is I've got to have my shirt ready for the next day. And I, and so I'm a big, like, what sort of irons do hotel rooms have? I'm a, I'm a, I would judge a hotel on its iron and its ironing board. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's a little insight into my laundry. That's fascinating. This is, yeah, you're the next conference organizer needs to make sure that you yes. have a good ironing facility. <laughs> yes. Oh, and what's That's even fantastic. Laundry. It was great in London too, because you could, you could, there was like, there's laundromats, there's different laundry cultures in different places as well. And, and I don't mind hotels where you can even have ones where you wash it, but most of the washing, that's, I'm not a huge traveler, but um, laundry is really important. It is. It is. So is, does the ironing help you feel in control? Is it one of, is it? Is that what? Uh, maybe that, it is. Maybe I'm, I've sublimated <laughs> all into that. And and one day my iron will break and I'll just, you know, like what happened to Mark? He, he became a, a, an anxious an anxious presence. <laughs> because again. of the lack of iron. That seems like a small yes, enough yes. fix though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's some bad iron, sharp and iron jokes we won't make. Oh, yeah. Yeah. good, good, good. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. It's just been a pleasure to, to read your work. And thank you for your good your good thoughts on your frameworks and helping us become less anxious as we minister in our local context. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Sayers. If you don't already, hurry on over and make sure you subscribe to his podcast, Rebuilders. It's so helpful and so astute. You definitely want to put that in your queue. You can also grab a copy of his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, 
Both are linked in the show notes. I love to leave my listeners with one small step, something tangible you can take into your everyday holy life. And so this week, I simply want you to notice when you become anxious, whether it's someone else's anxiety has offset your own, or you see something online, or you're just even overwhelmed with your own laundry pile, to notice when you're operating out of anxiety. And in that moment, you have an invitation to press in closer to God through a prayer, through a reminder of who you are in Christ, through reciting scripture. And then think about how you can make that communal. If you press into God, that is important and individual, but how might you make that communal? Maybe you have a group text thread with folks from church about becoming less anxious in the systems of which you are a part. Friends, it's such a pleasure to be with you every other week this summer and every week during the school year. I so appreciate you listening, subscribing, and interacting here on the Finding Holy podcast. So if you haven't yet, would you mind just taking a few seconds to rate and review the podcast? It's a great way to make sure these conversations continue to happen. Remember, all of these big things matter. Frameworks are important, but... So is your laundry. 